We're going to go on a little bit of a journey today. I would uh, recommend if you have any way of taking notes, it might be worth considering taking some notes. I don't have a PowerPoint, so I won't have helpful notes on the slide for you, but you can make your own. So um, today I'm going to be speaking about the simplicity of pleasure. And it's quite funny. So so Noel, um, my wife, also um, speaks at church sometimes. And the last two subjects she's had is fellowship and hospitality. And as an extrovert, that's like my dream. I love to talk about people and how to love people well. Um, And Noel is uh, less infused about that. But... um, (laughs) In this, in this way round, um, simplicity and solitude and simplifying our pleasure, it's not, it's not my strong suit. So um, this is going to be a journey of talking about progress over perfection, and it's going to be talking about convictions that probably, maybe even until before I met Noel, I didn't really have at all. So I'm going to try and take you on this journey of some of the convictions that I've found um, have spoken to me on this subject. I'd also like to just recommend a couple of books before I start that I think have been really helpful for me in terms of talking about simplicity. One of them is The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Homer. Nicola recommends, so yeah, no, endorsement already. So The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Homer. And um, I haven't read all of this, but I've, I read a bit of it to prepare for this. And The Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster is also a really brilliant book in just... Get it, growing and getting closer to Jesus. Because um, I believe that this particular subject, simplicity, is one of the greatest battles for our culture and for us as a church in our culture today. And I'm going to break down a couple of reasons for why I think that is over the course of the next half hour or so. Um, so far, we've had, we're actually coming towards the end of our simplicity series. We've already had Beth talk about coming back to our first love. We've had Ollie talking about simplicity of heart and focusing on on Jesus. We've had Ben last week talk about simplifying our stuff, thinking about what do we need? Is the stuff we have a tool or a trophy? And today we're going to talk about pleasure. So I'm going to first ask, what is pleasure? So pleasure, as helpfully defined um, by Google, is the feeling of happy satisfaction and enjoyment. Or another version I found is enjoyment and entertainment as opposed to necessity. So pleasure is enjoyment, perhaps non-essential in our lives. This is sort of what I got from that. Um, I think sometimes when we come to a Christian talk, though, and we hear that pleasure is going to be spoken of, I, I often come to a talk and think, oh, what they're going to say is just pleasure, uh, avoid it. Like, do what you can, but it's better probably to avoid pleasure and just focus on five hours a day of praying and getting up at 4 a.m. to to be with God and and really, you know, like, that's all worldly stuff and let's just focus. And um, I don't know about you, the other other question I sometimes have people ask when it comes to pleasure or maybe entertainment is, is it edifying? Like, does it lead you closer to God? And I found that I've sort of watched... 15, 18 rated movies with Jesus in the past and asked him to speak to me through them and felt really edified by the things he said to me. And I've been in worship nights where it feels like some Hunger Games-style competition to see who is the most avid worshipper, who gives the best words, who is the, 
who is the most holy. And um, I sort of question whether we always know what is edifying through the surface alone. So today we're going to try and go a bit deeper into pleasure and think about what is edifying and what leads us closer to God, but without just, because I think just asking the question sometimes doesn't do a lot, other than leave us confused that maybe when we watch a movie or when we watch the football, are we, is, is it leading me closer to God and am I really being edified and am I sinful and should I, should I just stop all of it? So, the first thing I want to say is that pleasure, according to God, is good. Let me read you some Bible verses to try and create this point for you. This is not comprehensive, but this is a few I found. John 10, verse 10, I came that you may have life and life to the full. In other words, Jesus says, I presume that you should enjoy, not simply endure your life. You should live it to the full. Psalm 149, verse 4 says, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. So God loves to take pleasure in things. He takes pleasure in us. Jeremiah 2 verse 7 says, I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. In other words, God brought the Israelites into the promised land to enjoy the material stuff that was in there. He didn't just say, I brought you into this land because then you could enjoy me more. He said, I wanted you to enjoy everything in it with me. Psalm 34, 37, verse 4, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We can have desires, we can desire things, we can want to enjoy things, and God says, delight in me and I will give you the desires of your heart. And Ecclesiastes 8, verse 15, which is one of my favorites, says, I command the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink, and be glad. Ecclesiastes, I think sometimes we give Ecclesiastes this, this slightly bad rep of it's like someone in a bad mood, but, but Ecclesiastes is counted within the wisdom literature, and it says again and again and again, it, life is pretty cyclical, um, you know, like Man City win the Premier League this year, then the next year, then the next year, but one year they won't win it. Like no achievement is, is completely sustainable forever, Nothing that we do is you know, completely you know, lasting an impact. Many things change and recycle. We will all pass on, and there will be generations after us that we don't know and will never meet. And therefore, you may as well enjoy the things you have. And you may as well devote the things you have to the Lord. That is Ecclesiastes. It's wisdom. It's not just grumpiness. Um, so... That's, to me, this is a bit of a case, and there are many other places we can find this in, in the Bible. We don't have time to go into all of them, but there are many places in the Bible where pleasure and seeking to enjoy life is considered a good thing by God. Are we all okay on that point? Yeah. If we disagree on that point, then we've got a problem. So, good. Good. We're all on the same starting point. So, I think it would be naive of me to those say that there are no times when pleasure can be a problem, though. And I'm going to talk about two key places where pleasure can be a problem. Um, it feels a little bit like I've prepared two sermons, so I'm going to kind of take us through them both. And the first one is that it's looking at Galatians 5, 16 to 25. If you want to turn there, we're going to spend a little bit of time in there. Um, and that's looking at acts of the flesh. I would call this 
the bad stuff, the bad pleasures, um, perhaps making decisions via pleasure alone. So in Galatians 5, verse 16 to 25, I'm going to read it um, with you. So, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discourse, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus has crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read these passages, which list a great big, log, big long list of um, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, all these different sins, and says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God, I can get a bit nervous. Like, I don't, many of you have never seen me play FIFA, but when I lose, occasionally, um, there may have been fits of rage in the past. Um, <laughs> I'm sure none of us can relate to any time that we've had fits of rage over something that really didn't matter. Um, I look at some of the times in my life where I have been, or, and I'm still, prone to envy, prone to selfish ambition, prone to many of these things. And I can ask myself, does this mean that if I do these things, I'm in trouble, like I will not inherit the kingdom of God? And... That often leads me to a place of anxiety rather than to a place of peace. And perfect love is meant to cast out fear and anxiety, not bring it. So here's a few things I just want to say about Galatians. The first thing is that there's a lot going on in Galatians before we get to chapter 5 and read this list of things um, that are bad pleasures. Um, primarily, the book of Galatians is relating to how the Jewish Christians are holding the Gentiles to the standard of Jewish law, they're holding them to things like, you must get circumcised. You must do all the things of the law. And Paul is arguing with them that they are now under grace. And therefore, good luck if you want to live by the law. But you're not meant to. You're meant to be living under the law of grace. We are all coming together under the law of grace. And therefore, I think that's why he says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. He's saying to them, you're moralizing all these Christians, these Gentile Christians, coming into the kingdom saying, don't do this, you shouldn't do this. To be a real Christian, you should do this, you shouldn't do this. You're creating all these rules. And yet it's pretty obvious what a person whose identity is in Christ should and shouldn't be doing. So, when he, so then he lists these things. I think his point here is not to say, here's a list of things, like if you ever do these, you're not, you are not saved, you're not inheriting the kingdom of God. It's to say those whose identity is not inheriting the kingdom of God, the fact that they don't, they're, they're not inheriting the kingdom of God, the fact that they're not in Christ is obvious. 
The works of the flesh are obvious. The second point I want to make is that if you were a Christian, you have inherited the kingdom of God. We have crucified our flesh. We have made a decision to repent of our sins, to turn from them, and to nail them to the cross where Jesus bought our eternal life and our salvation. So again, I think sometimes we can ask, if I I do a certain action, if I get tempted towards envy or whatever, does this mean I haven't inherited the kingdom of God? Here's something that I find interesting about that phrase, inherit the kingdom of God. It comes, it comes up, the same sort of idea comes up in Ephesians 2. I'm just going to read it. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Talking to the Christians. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. Now, I want to just point out this this phrase that says, those who are disobedient. So it's the same thing, a list of bad things, and it's those who are disobedient who are doing this. And again, sometimes I can go, oh, does that mean if I'm ever disobedient that I'm in danger of losing my salvation? But a more accurate way of translating those who are disobedient in the Greek is to say the sons of disobedience. And yet again, I want to say that this is an identity statement, not a statement on the consequence of each action. Therefore, when we sin... It's not a case of saying, when you sin, when you mess up, you are in danger of losing the kingdom of heaven. You're in danger of this and that. You are are in the flesh. It's more, I think, saying, hey, you are not in the flesh. You have been bought at a price. You are no longer a son of disobedience. You are a son of God. So therefore, it's not fitting for your identity to do these things, to do these drunken orgies and parties and all the rest. Instead, you are in Christ. It's fitting instead for you to be producing the fruit of the Spirit, as is brought up in the Galatians passage. Does that make sense? Our identity is not sons of disobedience, and it never will be. When you say yes to Christ, you are always, you are always chosen royalty in the royal priesthood of Christ. That is who you are. Do not be tempted into becoming anxious and worried about the sins of your past or even the sins of your future because Jesus has nailed those things to the cross when you said yes to him. In fact, John Stott talks about um, this in his commentary on Galatians, and he talks about um, crucifying the, the flesh. And he says that when a person was crucified, it was certain that they would die, but it was not certain how long it would take. When the person was first nailed to the cross, they didn't instantly die. Like Jesus did not die as soon as he was nailed to the cross. He spent a fair few hours in agony, suffocating, trying to keep himself alive in vain. Now, the analogy here is that when we crucify the flesh to the cross, it is certain to die. It may not happen immediately. 
you may find that when you give your life to Christ that not everything immediately is changed and you are perfect, but it is certain that the desires of your flesh will die. It's just a question of how long it's going to take. I also just want to talk about the fruits of the Spirit in this moment as well, because I think it works in the equal way with those, where uh, when Paul talks about we produce the fruit, whereas we walk in the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit are this, 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 and this. Um, I don't think what he's saying is you need to try and produce in your life goodness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. When we see a tree, we don't look at it and go, wow, that tree really worked hard. That tree did an amazing job at producing those apples. Well done to that tree. Let's hope he can work just as hard next year. Instead, we credit the one who planted it, who planted the tree, who planted the seeds, and trusted that they would produce fruit. So the Holy Spirit has planted his fruit in you, and he knows that it will bear fruit as you follow him. It is not on you to produce good fruit. It is on you to follow Jesus, to walk in the Spirit, to be in his presence, to be with him. And when you do that, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control, these things will just naturally come. It is an identity statement. It is, not a, it is not a statement of who you should be trying to be and what you should be trying to do. Okay, and the third thing I just want to say on this Galatians passage is I believe that when God commands things, there is wisdom to be found. God is a secure enough parent that he put Adam and Eve in a garden with a tree they weren't supposed to eat and allowed for them to eat it without throwing them out the way. He was a secure enough parent and God that he allowed Abraham and Moses to question him and to debate with him. He was a secure enough parent that he allowed for the Romans to crucify his son, knowing that ultimate victory was still going to be his. God is secure in your questions and your doubts. If you read this list and you say, I don't necessarily understand why he's saying this thing about sex, or this thing about drunkenness, I would recommend that you ask those questions rather than assume that God is a because I said so parent. How many of us have sort of experienced or, be, or maybe even been because I, I said so parents? It's a challenge, right? Because the, <laughs> the outcome of because I said so, and I don't know as a parent, but I do know as having worked with children in the past, is the outcome is either going to be you say, don't do this because I said so, and they won't. Or if you're a child a bit more like me, uh, they will. And, and that's, that's it. <laughs> but instead, the powerful thing is not just to create the boundaries of where you should go, but explain why the boundaries exist. So that as the child grows, they do not just grow in obedience, but they grow in discernment and wisdom. I believe that God has not made the Bible straightforward because he wants us to wrestle with it. He wants us to ask questions of it. He wants us to interrogate it so that we grow in wisdom and discernment. He's not a I said so parent. So when we look at Galatians 5, verse 16 to 25, I think what we see is this huge statement of who we are. We are 
walking, if when we walk in the Spirit, we are meant to produce fruit. And as Paul says, it is obvious the things that are not producing the fruit, the, the orgies and the drunkenness. And I think if I spent the rest of my time going on and on about how we shouldn't be in orgies and drunk and envying everybody, I mean, I, I think you guys would probably be like, yeah, yeah, we get that. Like, we, we didn't come to church uh, not knowing that we shouldn't do that, and this has been a huge revelation to us. So I think we can say those pleasures, we kind of get it. But I think there's a second danger with pleasure that I want to just spend the rest of my time exploring with you now that we're confident in who we are in Christ. Does that sound good? I want to talk about ex- excess. Excess. Excess of pleasure. Almost going after all the right pleasures, but too much. How many of us know the story of King Solomon? It's good to have a wife. He had 800. (laughs) It's good for us to worship God, but Solomon desired for his temple to be the greatest, most extravagant, most wonderful, that his kingdom was the biggest and best and greatest. There was excess pleasure all over Solomon's kingdom. Did it last? Was the legacy beyond Solomon one of continual children who loved the Lord and worshipped him well? Actually, the kingdom that Solomon was a part of creating with David eventually gets exiled. It does not stand on its own. It is defeated. It needs Jesus. It needs Jesus to come and be the true king. So to take that analogy into our everyday, I think we can see excess all around us. Now, I think our culture likes to satirize excess quite a lot. There's a, there's a movie called The Triangle of Sadness, which is quite funny. And within it, there's this big group of rich people who have excessive wealth, excessive everything they ever would want. And they go to this cruise to sit in a, an exclusive dinner with the captain. And it all seems like they're having a wonderful time. And then there's a great big storm. And everybody is violently sick. And it all goes wrong. And the, the movie is trying to talk about the, when you have excessive pleasure, when you have excessive wealth, actually, it is not giving you everything you need. It is, it is showing how just the slightest thing can rock that excess into being sick. And I think it's easy for us to look at the, ex, the, the excessively wealthy and to laugh at them together and to satirize them together in our culture but to not necessarily look at the places where we have the same heart attitude towards excess and don't realize it. Here's a few things that I thought about. Entertainment. How many of of us have watched a Marvel movie in the past? How how many of us feel feel the pressure to continually watch Marvel to make sure we know, um, we keep up with the next show and the next film? That's really good, great. You You guys are highlier than me. But this is the thing, entertainment is saturated with, you know, did you like Indiana Jones when you were a child? Well, now you can watch him at 80 years old, fighting a new battle. Did you enjoy Jurassic Park? Well, now we're going to get the whole gang together and fight some more dinosaurs. There's a constant creation of content for the sake of content, of creating entertainment for the sake of, please keep coming and bringing us money. It interests me that a lot of us, I think I do this, again, a lot of us maybe, but I do this. I watch YouTube often for educational purposes. Like, I like to to find out how to, like, I don't know, play football better or write scripts for movies better or whatever else. 
And I find that often what happens is I'll find three or four really good videos that teach me like a really good principle. And then the next 50 videos that I watch just say the same thing again and again and again and again. Because YouTube's not designed to educate us. YouTube's designed as a content creation factory for us to continually give our time and attention to and be distracted by. I'd probably say the same for most of social media. The social media algorithms are there to destroy us. They're not there for our benefit. I am, um, I'm a Liverpool fan. Um, I, I'm also an Ipswich fan. Ipswich are doing great. But Liverpool, we'll see. Um, so Liverpool, in case anyone doesn't know, uh, basically wanted to buy two players a week ago, and then Chelsea decided that they would throw more money at them and buy them both, and um, it, made, it made all Liverpool fans very sad and angry. Isaiah's a Chelsea fan, and he's smiling at the back. <laughs> but I found myself continually searching the name Moises Caicedo on, on Google to try and find out if he'd chosen us yet. I found myself reading the comments of every single Liverpool post on Instagram because it was full of angry Liverpool fans going, buy someone, you better sign someone. I can't believe we've let this go. And I was, I was addicted to it. I was addicted to the drama. And the more that I looked at these comment sections, the more that the first thing at the top of my Instagram algorithm was another Liverpool post. Social, that social media engines are not just designed to like find the things you like. They, they're, they're so fine-tuned that they can discern how many seconds you look at something compared to something else. A two-second lapse of concentration can suddenly get you into a deluge of unhelpful content that you didn't need, that gets more and more extreme to keep you more and more on the, on the drama bus. I think about food. We all want food to constantly be the most pleasurable. Like how many of you, when you see a, like a, a bruise on an apple or whatever, uh, throw it away rather than cut off the bruise? Um, a blogger that Noel loves to listen to um, talks, called Kezia Nash talks about how we often throw away blemished food or keep away from, from food that does not seem the most tasteful or the most beautiful because we live the lie that every single meal is meant for our pleasure rather than for our nutrition. Like, everything does not have to be 10 out of 10 constantly. But yeah, I think there's this thought. I think that's why like in some cultures, eating out is the thing constantly. It's, it's finding pleasure in food constantly. And yet, so often, the most pleasurable feeling food at the time is not the most nutri nutritional. Our culture is chasing pleasure. Sports. I follow two Premier League teams. I watch pretty much every other Premier League game going. I, I watch um, the NFL season on Sunday night from start to finish. I have nine fantasy football teams. There was once a time where I was watching one spot on the TV, one sport on the laptop, whilst playing chess.com and trying to come up with ideas for my next story that I wanted to write. And, and, I, and, I, and I thought, I thought that what I was doing is just keeping myself entertained while the ideas would flow. But actually, what I was doing was being horrendously distracted. Horrendously distracted from doing really anything meaningful. But it's true, isn't it? How, like, there's this need to, 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 be in, to be in touch with everything that's going on in the world. This need to travel to every country. This need to taste every culture. 
this need to achieve all these different things. Like, I want to be, like, really good at, I want to be able to play music like these guys here, but I also want to be, like, a better sportsman. I also want to be a good speaker, and I also want to be a great mentor to people, and I also want to be just so devoted to the Lord in, in, in my worship. And we just want it all. We can't have it all. I don't know if anyone else is with me on this. or ever, yeah, you're, No, no, I've, ne- I've never felt any of this myself. Um, even look at, the, like, like, you like coffee in Bishop Stortford? Well, great, good, because there's about 15 different coffee shops in the space of, like, 100 metres. Do you want to buy a set of clothes that you're only going to wear once for this party or this wedding and then have a wardrobe full of clothes that we never wear just every now and then? How many pizza restaurants do we need in this town? How, how many different types of craft beer does there need to be in the world? The list goes on and on and on. I even think we see this in the church, this desire to be constantly consuming the most convicting sermons so that we can feel the motion of conviction, but maybe not go into the, like, the discipline of actually enacting any of that conviction into our lives because that's the difficult bit that takes time and patience but we can keep getting hit with the emotional buzz of beautiful worship, of convicting messages, and of cool services and festivals, etc. I think we often, if we're not careful in this culture, in the church too, we're looking, we, we spend our time too much looking for easy answers and immediate miracles. We are distracted, impatient, and in a hurry to feel good. Our society is not able to enjoy pleasure fully, because it does not want it, it needs it. We're addicts. More often than not, we're too distracted to give God our attention for more than five minutes, yet alone service of our lives. So, I think I've made, made that point. <laughs> so I'll move on. Um, what are we going to do about this? There's two options. There's one that I'm less in favor of, so I'll start there. We could just detach entirely. We could just try and detach ourselves from pleasure. Go, you know what? Like, as soon as I want to watch one Premier League game, I want to watch all 10 in the weekend. So it's just not, as soon as I have one fantasy team, I'm, I want five. Like, because this one went wrong, so I'll get this one and this one and all these other things. Atta- detachment has been tried. So there's various forms of what is called asceticism which is essentially the idea of we detach ourselves from worldly pleasure and we just bring ourselves fully into the presence of God. This is where maybe some monastic traditions have come from. This idea of just we take ourselves, we don't, we're celibate, we don't uh, live in the world, we live detached and purely devoted to prayer. There's an idea that um, John Piper talks about too called Christian hedonism, which is basically the idea of, yeah, have pleasure, but, it, but seek maximum pleasure just in God, just fully on God. And I think there's some beauty in these ideas. There's beauty in bringing ourselves away to purely follow God. But I think there's also a caution that this creates this dualist idea of the world where God good, world bad. Stay good, don't go into any of the bad things. And as I brought us to earlier, God took people into the promised land because the stuff in it was good. There are good things, there is good pleasure to enjoy in the world. We are not meant to just completely detach from it. Okay. 
I actually don't think this was necessarily what the asceticists... I look at someone like Basil of Caesarea. He actually rejected the idea of asceticism being a separatist movement anyway. Instead, what he said is that we need a simplification of pleasure which helps us to seek out loving and serving one's neighbor in according to the gospel. We need to simplify our pleasures, not just remove them, simplify them down. How do we simplify ourselves to the fact where we pursue things fully rather than we pursue everything sort of? I'm going to give a non-comprehensive list of a few ways in which I think we can do this in the next five minutes and a couple of reasons why I think that's good and I'm going to respond and we're going to finish. What does it look like to simplify pleasure? Well, I think the main thing is that we live life with the correct priorities. We learn to prioritize what is important. Matthew 6, 33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added. Kierkegaard said when taking this verse, does that mean that you need to go and preach to the masses? No. First, seek first the kingdom of God and he will lead you to where you're meant to go. Does that mean I need to go and feed the poor? Not necessarily. Seek first the kingdom of God. Go to God, ask him, what do I need to keep? What do I need to let go of? Everything else will be added. Seek first his way, his kingdom, his, his way of life. Here's a few more practical possibilities. Maybe buying things based on need, not status. I personally think Noel was an incredible example of this. Somebody who um, often will want more clothes than she can have, but buys what she needs. Me too. She? She and he. She and he. Yeah, me too. I only have what I need to. <laughs> Noel, Noel basic, again, Noel often asks her the question, do I need this? When it comes to the books that she loves, could I borrow this from the library instead of buying it? Do I need to have this social media account? Will it actually produce the, the fruit of the Spirit in me? I think it's good, as a side, to get around people who we see seem content in everything they have rather than needing more. I think that will actually inspire us to want less, but to f- follow him. Enjoy the simple things and enjoy them without needing to own them. Richard Foster argues that we should be able to enjoy being at the beach without needing to own a part of it. We should be able to enjoy walking in public parks, sharing a simple meal with friends, no matter how extravagant it is. Why don't we try and do things one at a time? Recently, I've tried this experiment, it's a radical one, of uh, eating my lunch without doing anything else. Not looking at my phone, not trying to write a to-do list, not watching the TV, just eating my lunch. It's really hard, because it feels like I spent a long time eating when actually I probably don't. But there's something John Mark Homer says that I really like, which is when you, when you turn off a machine, it just stops. When you turn off a human being, it starts. When we give ourselves space to do things one at a time, or to just even do nothing at all, that's when we start to come alive. That's when we start thinking about things. That's when we start dreaming about possibilities. When we're distracted, we cannot do that. Be ruthless with your addictions. Be be ruthless in asking yourself, 
if I didn't have this for a week, would I live? And if you even think to yourself, oh, I don't know, there's a possibility that that's an addiction. So just try it. Just say, you know what, I won't be on chess.com for a week or Instagram or fantasy football. I don't know. Like, um, what if my team, like, what if I, my, what if I don't captain the right player? Well, try it. I might try it. <laughs> do whatever you do well. The old adage is it takes 10,000 10, hours to become an expert at something. So if you do the maths, I think it will become pretty clear that you cannot be an expert guitar player, preacher, writer, singer, whatever else, in the lifetime that you have. But there are one or two things that you can do excellently in your life. So chase after those things and be patient with them. I wish I'd been more patient with some of my hobbies when I was younger. I really wish I'd been more patient, but there's still time. There's time for all of us to still be patient with the things we're on, to not give up on them when they don't give us the pleasure we feel we need immediately. The final thing is, on what does this look like, is avoiding the things that breed opposition to others. As I've already said of social media, it often breeds opposition because that breeds addiction, that breeds need. Let's avoid those things. Let's avoid habitually following into the drama of emotion, the things that make us, oh, I hate that person, that oh, annoys me so much. I get really impatient with slow walkers on the pavement. Um, I'm trying, I'm not always very good at this, but I'm trying really hard when I drive or when I walk to just be okay with walking slowly behind people. I'm not always very good at it, but I'm trying in my heart to go, Tom, it does not matter. It's only, only 30 seconds of your life is being wasted here. It's not, it's not more than that. You're okay. <laughs> I honestly think that if we start slowing ourselves down and pursuing simple pleasure like this, we will find that we find greater purpose in our choices. There's an amazing film called Mr. Nobody, which is about a guy who basically has the ability to see everything he might possibly do in his future and the possible consequence of every single action. And the film is about trying to figure out what was the right choice, what was the right choice. But the point is, there was no right choice. The right choice was the one he made. And only he knows what, which one he made. And that we can spend so much time distracting ourselves of what if I'd married someone else? Or what if I'd had this for lunch instead of that for lunch? What if I'd decided to like, go to football practice more when I was 14? Like, but the point is you made a choice and there's meaning in the choice you made and there's meanings in the choices you'll make afterwards. By doing this, it declutters us. It declutters our minds and it brings us rest. By doing this, we resist the devil who seeks to destroy us by distracting us. And by simplifying ourselves, we also reveal the gospel, not for our words, but for our conduct, through our contentedness with the things we have, rather than feeling the need to have more. Philippians says, and I'll finish with this, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, then whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my, presence, in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. It means you don't have to say often very much about the hope that you have. 
but as you demonstrate that you are content, that you are at peace with what you have, that you are not constantly needing more attention or affirmation or distraction or things, you will demonstrate to a world that is constantly in need of more, where true contentedness can be found. So I just want to ask us a question, and I just want to give us a minute to consider this question. I want you to ask, what pleasures in your life are harming you? Because we talked about those bad pleasures, and I said, oh, it's obvious, you know, but it might be that some of us actually are like, you know what, there is actually some stuff there that I need to let go of. Envy, drunkenness, whatever else. Now, I then want to ask you, what pleasures are distracting you? Sports, entertainment, food, housing market. What things are distracting you? And finally, what pleasures, pleasures are you being called to pursue? What are the dreams that God is calling you to pursue with your whole heart? and to be patient with? What are the things that you're called to enjoy? I'm just gonna give you just 15 more seconds just to consider those things. What is harmful? What is distracting me? What am I being called to pursue? I'm gonna pray. Jesus, I thank you that you've given us pleasure that is good. I thank you that we are here to enjoy life, not just endure it. And Lord, I pray right now for each person in this room, whether there are things that are harming us, whether there are sins and habits in our lives that we need to let go of, I thank you that you've already made us people who walk in the spirit, not the flesh. And we, can, we have nailed those things to the cross already and you will kill those things, those pleasures. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have given us tools and the ability to throw off the pleasures that distract us. And I pray right now that you give us strategies and patience and the fortitude of will to say, you know what, I don't need that right now. I am gonna give that up for a season or for whatever. And finally, Jesus, I just pray for each person in this room who has a dream and who has something that is pleasurable that they want to pursue. And I pray that you give them that go-ahead right now. Go for it. Walk with me. Be patient. You can do it. Jesus, we thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for being with us. And we pray that we talk things that you just to.